0: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucer. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group Headquarters at Rockwell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Rockwell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. W W.W. Brezel was the man who discovered the software. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying software to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. In the meantime, General Ramey describes the object as being of flimsy construction, almost like a box type. He says that it was so battered that he was unable to determine whether it had a disc form, and he does not indicate its size. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tin foil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man.
1: Now, back to Taylor Grant in New York. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Hour 2 of our special look at the roswell ufo incident the 70th anniversary don schmidt is with us on the line the author of cover up at roswell exposing the 70-year conspiracy to suppress the truth and in studio our good friend victor vigiani executive director of Zland Communications and the Zealand News Network. Victor, uh, give us a, uh, a website, how people can read your press releases and your articles and so forth.
2: Now, the best way to reach uh, all the information is just to Google the word zland Communications, all one word, Z-L-A-N-D, and communications, and you'll come up with all the press releases and the articles that we put forward. I guess the best way to describe it is a, it's a news organization that attempts to report on this whole phenomenon in, in a very hopefully objective way, but that gets the information out, not necessarily by writing uh, stories about it or, or just looking at the facts and reporting it and getting the information out there and letting people decide.
1: Over the next hour, we'll hear from some more witnesses. Uh, Glenn Dennis, of course, the mortician at uh, the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell, uh, who has some very interesting stories to tell. Savage Dodson, another witness, and Larry, uh, it was Carla Green's brother. Uh, Rowlett. Rowlett, Larry Rowlett. We'll also hear uh, from him. Before we get back into it, though, Victor, just give us some impressions. The 70th anniversary of the Roswell mm-hmm. UFO incident, as Don has said many times. You know, we're in a race with the Undertaker now. The second generation, the children of Roswell, mm-hmm. now dying. So, what are your thoughts? Are we ever going to get to the truth?
2: The answer to that question has to be an eventual yes, because people like Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and uh, Stan Friedman and other people who have done research on this, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming about the, the incident itself. But the other side of the coin is the resistance that the United States government, the United States military is still expending in order to put the last nail in the coffin of this issue. They are still trying to shut people up about it. In other words, you know, threatening people. Uh, they did it back with Frankie Rowe. I think we could have maybe Don talk about that incident of one of the uh, the daughters of a, one of the firemen that was was out at the site, the way they threatened that family, and they 're still doing it now. Why the intimidation? Why the fear factor still in two thousand and seventeen? So there must be something going on behind the scenes that that they don't want the general public to know about. So it's a double-edged sword in terms of when this is going to come out and how it will come out.
1: Right. I guess a a better way of asking the question is that we already have the truth. The question is, when are we going to get an admission? And the the answer to that is probably
3: never. Probably never.
1: Don, your thoughts on that question?
3: Victor, you speak of it quite accurately and actually quite sadly when you think about it that, you know, I cite the contemporary example of, the, uh, of even Edward Snowden, whether one thinks of him here in this country as a traitor or even a hero, as a whistleblower. The irony that an American would have to flee to Russia for sanctuary, for protection, when the exact opposite has always been true. And the very thought, of the culpability, and Vicky, you're correct in that the truth is there. The story, the eyewitness testimony, I can't tell both of you how often we have had even skeptics tell us that the book, our book, Witness to Roswell, which just provides an opportunity for all of these witnesses to just speak out and tell their personal accounts and how it all plugs in, that it all becomes part of this fantastic mosaic, whether military, whether civilian, whether media, They are all describing the same extraordinary event, and they all reacted extraordinarily as though they were dealing with something, you know, beyond the pale, something they could not comprehend. And the irony, when you think about it, the last time that former President Bill Clinton was on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and this is all they talked about, and Clinton lamenting the fact that I had eight years in the Oval Office and i couldn't get them to tell me the truth about roswell and we could add president carter and the late senator barry goldwater and the late congressman Stephen schiff and the former governor of bill, uh, of new mexico bill richardson and i'm sure we could add others so we're talking right up to the office of the presidency and so i would always throw this back even to any of your listeners who would think well i know better I know that this couldn't have happened, anything but extraterrestrial, that that people need to believe the government, that this was nothing more than a a top-secret mogul balloon. Well, what do you know that even the president doesn't know? What do you know that senators and congressmen Uh and governors don't know? Uh, Maybe you should, you know, please, you know, inform them of what, you know, your information is because they still lament the fact that they cannot be they cannot get the truth about this. So I'm in very good company, right up to the office of the president.
1: <laughs> you know what's interesting? People, the skeptics always say, whether it's in the UFO arena or elsewhere, they always say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's, Carl not, attitude, that's right. not true, though. That's
3: it. It, that's you don't correct. have yeah,
1: to have extraordinary true. evidence. You just have to have evidence.
3: Precisely. Precisely. And testimony,
1: I mean, eyewitness testimony, is at least in 2017, is still considered Pretty good evidence,
2: especially the the forensic nature of what uh, yes. of what some of these
1: researchers have done. How many up? people have been sent to the gallows in the electric chair based on eyewitness testimony? Eyewitness
3: testimony, and in the case, uh, and, and at least here in the United States, deathbed testimony is admissible. It's considered physical evidence, and we have to date over two dozen deathbed testimonies, and each and every one of them talks about the little men. The little people, they talk about that this indeed was the recovery of a flying disc. It wasn't a weather balloon of any sort. It wasn't a rocket. It wasn't an aircraft. It was something, non, as far as, as one of the witnesses said to us, they sure weren't from Texas.
1: <laughs>
2: Take so, that, Bill Nye, yeah.
3: for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and I, I, we had a debate him. We had to deal with him on Larry King.
1: Yes, I remember
2: that. And
3: he couldn't even get the right weather balloon. <laughs>
2: I uh, want to bring up the issue of issue fatigue, um, Don. Yes. yes. I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. uh, after such a long period of time, 70 years, uh, I would imagine that the U.S. government, the military, or whoever ha- are the, the holders of the secret, um, are hoping for this issue just to kind of fade away. Right. Um, uh, in hopes that if it does resurrect itself in a really, really meaningful way, um, and I have a suggestion about that, we we'll can talk about it later, but the fact of the matter is, if this thing resurrects itself in a, in a meaningful way, the entire national security, um, I guess, uh, matrix of the United States is at risk. It, it, do you think that's one of the reasons why they want to keep the lid on it? Is it a national security issue of the highest priority?
3: Well, I think that's been an acknowledgment, even from the highest elements of the Pentagon, of the, of the military for years, that, um, that if, should UFOs actually exist, that it would indeed be a threat to national security. You have aircraft, you have devices, you have unknowns that are able to fly through not only our airspace, but Canadian airspace, every uh, you know, sovereign airspace around the world with total you know, impunity you know, we can't touch them, we can't outperform them, there's nothing we can do. And as a result, who's going to step forward and say, well, yes, we are being visited, we are not alone, uh, there are aircraft that are able to outmaneuver, outperform anything that we throw at them, anything that, uh, you know, any effort on our part to identify them. We don't know where they're from, who they are, what their motives are, but vote for me come next election. You know, uh-huh. who's going to accept that responsibility? You know the Walter Cronkites and even the Pope, for that matter, will they would well, they rise to that occasion? And as we've mentioned, the threats, the the very physical threats to American citizenry, that therein would uh, would lie the culpability. Just imagine the class action suit that all these families could then unite and throw back at the United States government. You mean you? threatened us over what you claim was nothing more than a weather balloon device all those years, and now you finally concede that we were telling the truth, that we were accurate, we were correct, and we, you know, had to face your wrath after all that time for nothing more than stepping forward and trying to tell the truth. So there is a a lot at stake here. And, and, And certainly back in '47, the actions of the military were justified. We had the Soviet Union breathing down our, our necks back at that time, and, and certainly it was a case of who could ever reverse engineer, who could ever develop the technology first, could potentially rule the planet, you know, could have total air supremacy, and we'd have a whole fleet of flying saucers, and, and, and nobody could challenge us. And so here we are now, 70 years later, and as you've heard me, as you birth, both have heard me. Heard me state in the past. I still maintain it's a cover up of ignorance that we still don't have any answers. You just we have a, still a f- don't know from why, from where, from who.
1: A few minutes before we head into the next break, and I want I want you to explain to me, Don, why the army first released you know the first explanation. Yes. Why? What's the rationale? If they, then they had to backtrack and cover up, and then for seventy years cover up. Why mm-hmm. the initial? Um, a press report that it was a captured disc.
3: Well, one of, uh, again, the, the, the misnomers that the debunkers always uh, provide is that it was a knee-jerk response on the part of the base at Roswell, that they just overreacted, and before higher-ups could, you know, essentially pull them out of the fire, so to speak, and uh, identified as nothing more than a weather balloon device, that it was just, again, a, a simple overreaction. Well, that does not uh, accept the scenario, the actual chronology of events, that Washington, D.C. already had some of the wreckage in hand by late Sunday, July 6th. And they do not put out that press release until a day and a half later on Tuesday, July 8th. So they had plenty of time to stage this, to word the press release in such a way that it appeared as though they had the disc in hand. does not name the ranch or the rancher. It doesn't name anyone but Major Marcel, and he immediately is shipped out of Roswell for the balloon press conference in Fort Worth. So it was a, a staged event. They essentially uh, they create the straw man, and then they tear it down. They could not deny... Something had happened because the rancher already had talked to the press. It was already getting out to the public. So they had to acknowledge something. And they masterfully put this together where we have a flying disc. Oh, by the way, we just have it now in front of us. And sorry, ladies and gentlemen, it's nothing more than a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And the press accepted it keeping in mind that post-World War II, the military walked on water. And whatever they stated as an explanation, the media accepted as well. And that's why they took a major gamble, but it worked. And it lasted for the next 30 years until Major Marcel finally broke his oath of silence and said, uh, wait a minute, ladies and gentlemen, the first press release was the correct one. It was a flying saucer.
1: All right. Uh, we will hear from uh, Glenn Dennis, uh, who worked at the uh, Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell. Uh, when we come back, Don Schmidt stays with us on the line. The author of Cover Up at Roswell in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications. As we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Sarrett.
0: The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
4: Contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. And I said, what do you need? And he said, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot and stock. And I said, we don't have any. How long would it take you to get them? And I said, well, I can call Amarillo by 3.30 this afternoon and have them in here in the morning. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also, but anyway. Then I hung up. Then he uh, called back later and he said, "Uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for... Uh, taking care of bodies and laying out in the elements for several days. And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I was trying to find out who I was talking to. But, uh, there again I was very stupid and I hung up (laughs) again and so, but anyway, later on the day I got an emergency. We had a, the only ambulance business in Roswell at that time. And this airman was riding an old Indian motorcycle and hit the back end of a farmer's trailer out here going into the gin. And so when I arrived at the base, where I usually back up to this ramp and unload the patients, there was three field Army Air Force, Air Force uh, ambulance backed up against the ramp. And uh, so I had to swing around. But anyway, we were walking up the ramp and I saw a lot of debris. And so... Uh, when I got in and checked him in, got all the vouchers and everything signed, I said, this uh, captain there. And I said, sir, it looked like we had a crash. So I need to get ready for it. And who in the hell are you and what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had an emergency. And we have the contract for all military services. And it looks like you had a crash. He just said, stay right here, don't move. And So I stayed there. And pretty soon he came back with two military police and said, get this guy off of the base. You're not supposed to be here.
1: And uh, that was uh, Glenn Dennis, the uh, mortician at Ballard's Funeral Home in Roswell, New Mexico. One of the key witnesses to the Roswell UFO incident. We're taking a look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt on the line, the author of Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani uh, in studio from Zealand News Network. Uh, Is... Uh, has Glenn uh, passed on, is, or is he yes.
3: still with us? Yes, he, Glenn uh, passed on uh, about three years ago, and for about five years up to that point, we honored his privacy, and um, he wasn't in the best of, uh, of, uh, of health at that time. So uh, I had always hoped to have uh, one final opportunity, and I honored the wishes of the family and never did. And, uh, and so many others, like Walter Hot. And, and and other witnesses of of that level, I uh, I always made every effort to at least say goodbye. Uh, it, it, I, it's like I I've lost my uncles over and over again with so many <laughs> people.
1: Right. I was going to say of all the testimony I've heard, that one to me is the most compelling and the detail. What do you think, Victor?
2: Well, that's I was just going to pick up on that. Um, in a, I'm not saying that I'm a uh, linguistic expert, but in in the, in my training. Um, in, in language development within children, uh, and even adults too, uh, when I listened to the actual linguistic patterns of the way Glenn spoke, I'm not talking about what he said, you know, the content, how he said it, the way one word leads into another, and the way another idea uh, leads into, uh, the, his ideation about the contents of what he was talking about was so specific you know stomach con- uh contents uh, ambulance backing up uh, you better stay there and don 't move and don 't go away. Uh, that does not sound like a man bent on making something up as a matter of fact, that kind of testimony is probably impossible to make up on the, on the, on the spur of the moment the the I think that's probably, as, as Richard just said, one of the most impeccable pieces of te- verbal testimony that I've ever heard. And in a court of law, it would have to stand up and convince a jury that something had to be had to be going on at that time.
3: All well, excellent points, Victor. And uh, we uh, were able to uh, corroborate, for example, the phone calls: a uh, former chief of police, and uh, another nurse, and a, a, an attorney, long-standing attorney in Roswell, who all described to us you know, in detail, that within days after the incident that Glenn, Glenn Dennis, the mortician, was still talking about these unusual phone calls, requesting information about, you know, the, the, preser- the preservation of bodily fluids and uh, of, of bodies which had been exposed to the elements on the desert for a prolonged period of time. And, 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 and most unusual was the request for the child-sized caskets, and uh, you know, at one point we had uh, we tried to talk to, and it was after some uh, uh, another investigator uh, by the name of Richard Thiem had managed to even talk to the son of uh, the father who had made the drive up up to Amarillo, Texas, from Roswell, and as it turns out, that's where they used to pick up the caskets. And he described uh, to uh, Richard Thiem that they made the long drive up to Amarillo for this uh, urgent, you know, pickup of these child sized caskets. And by the time they returned back to Roswell, the city was under lockdown. It was all blocked off, and they had to circle to the west of the city to come in. His father dropped them off at home as he went out to the base. And when he first returned back the next morning, he was white as a ghost and acted as though this was, you know, truly, you know, something that shocked him when he learned what was actually going on. And and so it's where you plug in all of this testimony. And it isn't where anybody is contradicting the other. Mm -hmm. It's like we can tell you who were on the special flights in and out of the base, and who were the guards posted around the hangar, and who were the doctors and nurses out at the base hospital, and who were the, the GIs out on the desert floor on their hands and knees picking up all this wreckage, and who were driving the trucks back and forth, and who were driving the ambulances, and who, were driving, who drove the Hilo uh, transporting the remains of the craft, that type of thing. We can assign different witnesses to all of those specific events in this entire chain of events, and um, nobody is, you know, saying, "No, no, 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 I was the one who did that." Oh no, you didn't do that. I did that. They're all either reading from the same script, or they're describing exactly what, what they're participation it's, their involvement was back at that time in
1: terms of the um, of the participants and the testimony it's like there are no missing pieces of the puzzle i mean i mean we don't have the physical evidence but in terms of the who was involved as you say who was where who did what what did they say it's it's all there the puzzle well, is complete or am i am i missing no, something no
3: and that's and i think Richard, that is, I think, the most amazing thing about this entire situation. You can talk to any crime investigator. You can talk to any insurance uh, claim adjuster. And they would, you know, they would all describe how ten people would witness an event. You'd have ten different accounts. But it's, uh, it's, 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 it's called the Ramachan effect. It's based on a Japanese murder trial. In fact, there was a movie even made about it. And what it basically comes down to is that there are three positions to every occurrence, every event. And what it, what it comes down to is that there is your version, and there is my version, and then there is what actually happened. And the difference being with the skeptics, with the debunkers, they don't care what actually happened. They, as far as their minds are made up, that their opinion is all that matters, anything but extraterrestrial, and they do nothing to try to prove what actually happened. The difference being that for all these years, and as I state that our investigation is still fluid, it is still striving to determine what actually happened. And that is the major difference in all of this. And as you said, Richard, as we continue to still plug in these pieces, these remaining, these final pieces, uh, there was an MP, he was with K-Squad, the Kitchen Squad, his name was Melvin Brown, and he was posted behind an ambulance truck. And he was told to keep his eyes forward. And on his deathbed in London back in 1985, he described to his wife and his two daughters how the first chance he got, he lifted up the tarp, and there were a couple of the bodies inside the back of this ambulance truck. Well, two years ago, I spoke to a former pig farmer by the name of Raymond Pollard, whose weekly job was to go out to the base and pick up the, the remains, the scraps, from the kitchen, the mess halls, because he would, they would feed them to the swine, to the pigs. Well, he described to me that he had a hell of a time getting onto the base because the base was under lockdown. And he finally said, well, you know, you need to dispose of all that garbage anyway, so you might as well just let me onto the base and I'll blow it up and I'll take off. Well, he described to me that there was a sergeant on the loading dock who was talking about the strange people he saw out at a crash site north of town. Well, okay, who was that, Sergeant (laughs) Brown? But the point is, here it's even a pig farmer who's picking up the garbage from the mess hall, and he becomes a witness to what had transpired north of town. Yeah. So it's like, again, they're all reading from the same script or they're describing exactly yeah, yeah. what they witnessed.
2: Yeah, you know, know what it's like, Don. It's like sitting on a beach and watching waves come in one at a time, at one right after another, just relentlessly hitting the shore. And that's what I, I feel sorry for you in a lot of ways because you know you, you've seen so many waves come forward and each one of them is just soaked with this grand mosaic of information. Um, and it's just, it must be very frustrating for you. I want to ask you um, in the time we got left here, you know you 've been through this a number of times. you, know, you go over you, probably, you, you eat sleep and, and, and dream this kind of stuff. Is there anything any incident that you are aware of that even comes close to the comparison uh, of the importance of the Roswell incident in terms of the, the depth of information and the validity of what 's really going on?
3: I would have to honestly say no okay. and for this reason that not only did you have, do we have, as far as, as an historical benchmark, the fact that they put out that press release, that they actually announced that they had captured a flying disc, and then they name names, so they establish a trail. Now, granted, they explain it away five hours later, but nonetheless, that as witnesses get older, and especially... Uh, due to the the courage the bravery of of jesse marcel stepping forward and saying wait a minute i handled that wreckage and it was not made on this earth that it establishes then a, a continuity that well beyond the retracted information that people eventually are going to step forward and say well i was there and they were not from texas that type of thing and so it establishes a minutia of information, and it creates this snowball that continues to get larger and larger and larger. And the difference, unlike all other UFO events that are just fleeting experiences, that people see something in the sky, or maybe at best even see something on the ground. But with Roswell, you have the actual recovery. You have where planet Earth actually takes possession of physical proof that we are not alone. And as a result, we're not glancing skyward hoping that they come back someday. We're able to point to Washington and say, you have the proof. You've been sitting on the physical evidence for 70 years. And as long as earthlings contain or uh, still uh, possess that physical proof, there is hope that we may finally pry it loose.
1: All right, stay right there, Don. And uh, likewise, Victor, we'll be back. We'll hear from Glenn Dennis again and uh, some other witnesses as we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt, author of Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani, z News Network in studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
4: There were two pathologists... I understood they were from Wright-Patterson. They were not doing an autopsy. They were examining what was brought in from the Roswell crash, what we call the Roswell crash. But the reason that she started out the door, and then they said, Lieutenant, we still have to have some help, and this is what you're going to do. And they wanted her, and so they'd take a forcep and turn a hand. She'd say four fragile fingers, so many centimeters, and all this kind of stuff. And she said she hadn't been in there over 20 or 30 minutes at the most. And all their eyes, and it started burning in their skin. They were feeling it was getting real warm and real hot. So that's when they just immediately, they had no idea what they had. The two pathologists said there wasn't anything in, their, in the anatomy books. There wasn't anything in what our medical schools. They had never seen anything like this. And uh, that's immediately after that, they were put in these uh, pouches, put in a hermetically sealed container and flown directly to Wright-Patterson.
1: All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show and our look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt is on the line, and uh, he is the author of, well, the latest is Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. And we just heard again from uh, the late Glenn Dennis, the mortician at the Ballard's Funeral Home in Roswell. And uh, this was—he's uh, speaking about a, a friend of his who was a nurse, uh, who was called in to work at the uh, the Roswell Army Airfield in uh, July of 1947. And it sounds like she was participating in. He said it wasn't an autopsy; they were simply examining these bodies. And again, Victor, what stands out is the the impeccable detail. And as you say, it's not what he says; it's the way he says it. I mean, it's just—it sounds so genuine,
3: authentic. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, well, your thoughts on that, Don?
3: I don't believe anyone spent more time trying to track down Glenn Dennis's nurse. We went to old convents. We we went through uh, as far as old nursing schools, with the hope that we might come up with a class photograph that she was pictured in, and realizing that. Glenn Dennis had provided us with a a false name, a wrong, the wrong name. And Tom Carey was with me at the time that I finally confronted Glenn. And there was a bit of a shouting match back and forth. I finally realized that what Glenn was doing, what Glenn Dennis was doing, was was protecting the woman, protecting the fact that that she may even have still been alive at that time. And... I also had to concede, now you're talking about, again, the World War II generation, and Glenn was married to his second wife, Kay, at that time. Well, his first wife was also still alive. Well, it didn't take much to finally you know, <laughs> determine the fact that Glenn was having an affair with a nurse. Ah, I mean, it was that <laughs> simple. The pieces come together. Yes, And so, yes, and but again, it doesn't disqualify the story. No. It doesn't no. mean that, well, you know, he would make up such an outlandish story to protect the fact he was having an affair with uh, a nurse who didn't even exist, as these, again, the naysayers would say. Well, at a later point, we learned about another nurse, and we confronted her. And the first words out of her mouth were, did Glenn Dennis tell you all about me? Well, (laughs) we didn't want to acknowledge that because in reality he had not. Though we had run her name back, uh, you know, we had run her, her name past him, and his reaction was, oh, well, I told you, you know, there was such a nurse. Well, anyway, the next morning after we did meet with this nurse, and we once again confronted Glenn Dennis, the mortician, and then he retracted. He recanted the whole thing. So it, 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 it became quite evident that she had called him immediately after we had left and uh, you know, essentially read the riot act to him, that you promised or I had asked you never to say a word. How did they know about me if it didn't come from you? But the point being, it did not come from Glenn Dennis. It came from another source. But nonetheless, he recanted. He, you know, I never told you about her. You know, I don't, I don't know that she was involved, that type of thing. So it was amazing how they even knew about one another.
1: Mm, indeed.
3: Uh, and and, and they're, too, demonstrating that they were aware of one another's participation.
1: Don, we're heading into a break. We've just got about 10, 15 seconds here. But do we know the identity of any of the pathologists?
3: We know of some of the pathologists, some of the uh, forensic experts who were at Wright-Patterson, Wright Field in 1947,
1: yes. All right, listen, we'll uh, pick that up on the other side. We'll also uh, hear from some more witnesses uh, coming back. Uh, We'll hear from, I believe, uh, Savage Dodson. Coming up next. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and our look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Stay with us.
0: Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett.
5: My name is Larry Roulette, I'm the son of. Carl Roulette was a sergeant in the Air Force. And my dad and I's relationship was, I can't say it was an excellent relationship, but it was a a good relationship. We never had any big problems or anything. It was in the late 80s and I was talking to my dad. We were out in his shop and we kind of got into a conversation about it then. And that's when he let me know that he had been on the cleanup crew that went out to pick up the crash site in 1947. But we kind of got into it. You know, he didn't want to really... He had to pry things out of him and it was hard to do. But I he was sick back then too, I believe. But he told me about the, the greys. So they got out there and then turned around and all of a sudden there was three of them laying there. So they bundled them up and took them back to the dispensary on the base. After they, they got out here and they found out they were in over their heads out here, they flew them to Dallas-Fort Worth. And from there, they went to the Little Pentagon, which is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. He told me to be best if I didn't tell anybody. And then he said, you know, that the government had told them when this incident happened, the government had come to them or gathered them all up, the ones that was out there, and told them that they were not to say anything about this. And They threatened them with their pensions, threatened them with their lives, threatened them with their families' lives. Word came out that they told him that it was a big desert out there and you could be put in places you'd never be found if you talked about it.
1: Well, we've heard that uh, time and time again, haven't we? That was Larry Eugene Rowlett, a brother of Carlene Green, uh, who we heard earlier. These are the the children of the witnesses of uh, Roswell. And we are looking at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Once again, Don Schmidt uh, joins us on the line. He is the author of cover-up at Roswell, and in studio, our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zeeland News Network. So, the bodies. Uh, you mentioned before the break, Don, that you were able to identify the pathologists at wright Hat, but not the pathologists who were on the ground at uh, Roswell, correct?
3: Well, we've had numerous testimony, like from some of the nurses like Rosemary McManus, who was at the base hospital at Roswell at that time. That all of these outside doctors and nurses arrived on the scene, and they essentially were, you know, told to stay out of the situation. And to McManus, for example, she made the comment to me that clearly something big had happened. Walter Hot, who was the public information officer, at one point when we had asked him in regards to Glenn Dennis's calls about the preservation efforts in preserving the bodies and the bodily tissue and fluids and everything, that they did not have a morgue at the base hospital. So they weren't set up for something of this nature at all. And so going up the chain of command and right field in 1947, they had the biological medical research facility. And the late Leonard Stringfield, who specialized, and he was one of the first people to actually interview Lieutenant Colonel at that time, uh, Jesse Marcel, as to his involvement at Roswell. And it was Len Springfield who had talked to a number of autopsy medical doctors who had uh, supposedly performed uh, such work on the remains from Roswell. And they even described specifically and in detail the very biological physiological nature of the bodies, and their digestive tracts, and their stomachs, and their lungs, and and, and their their bone structure, and that type of thing, and the use of the word humanoid, that they were like us in many respects, but yet they were not, and the testimony being very consistent as to the bodies recovered at Roswell and then in conjunction to the remains, the bodies that were received at Wright field were consistent, that they were describing the same as the Ramy memo would say, the victims of the wreck.
2: Uh-huh. I, I want to address a question that's been sort of haunting me a little bit about all this. Um, yeah, there's two aspects to it, I guess, Don. You, you've, you've interviewed, how many interviews have you conducted about this? 300? We've
3: We've talked to over 600, 600 people, okay. either directly or indirectly involved.
2: With reference to the bodies, okay, how many of these witnesses, independently, without any prompting on your part, mention bodies? Would you? I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot for a specific. Oh, number. not at all.
3: Not at all. And and uh, and I believe, as we've been able to demonstrate, that the the witnesses specifically to the bodies, are the ones that were threatened and intimidated the most. It's, it's one thing if you've only handled or even seen the bizarre, the strange wreckage. You might be able to convince any of the witnesses therein that, well, it's something top secret, it's something, it's a, it's something new of our design, and you're going to have to keep quiet about it. You can't say anything. But the moment you've observed non-human bodies, remains of, uh, you know, of something that clearly, uh, you know, that demonstrates that we're dealing with a life form from off the planet, all bets are off. Uh, one of the things that truly intrigued us as to the, in the actual involvement of non-human remains was why, if the rancher Mac Brazo, simply handled wreckage, simply saw this material that he could not identify or anybody else he had you know displayed it to, why would they then abduct him keep him out at the base for five full days unless he truly saw something else And then when radio station reporter Frank Joyce described to us how Brazo, when he was brought to radio station KGFL to retract the original story. And Brazel would then go off mic, they'd go out into the lobby, and Joyce would remind him, what about the little green men? To which Brazel then turned back and said, but they weren't green. Mm. And you start to again plug in all of that, and you (laughs) realize... That whether it's the fire the fighter uh, Dan Dwyer who described seeing the bodies north at the impact site, and then you have Brazel and the young boys who were with him, and you then have the personnel at the hangar. We talked about Pappy Henderson and his flying out a number of the bodies. You have the nurse at the base hospital. This is all in many, and sadly in many cases, secondhand. But nonetheless, they're all describing remains. And then you throw in the document, the teletype, victims of the wreck. Well, it's not us asking about the bodies. It's where different people from different vantage points, whether out at the ranch, whether out at the hangar, at the base hospital, or then the special flights, and then you have the teletype, we're not asking the question. They're all plugging it in once again, as Richard was originally saying, that no matter from whatever vantage point you have, you're providing a piece of that puzzle.
1: Let's get one more piece of the puzzle, and this is a first-hand witness. Let's hear from uh, Savage Dodson.
6: My name is Savage Dodson. I was a young GI, 22 years old, at Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. My job out there was in technical supply, and that job included taking care of what we called flyway kits. One day, the base supplier called me and said, We have some fuel injection pumps for your flyway kits. And I said, Okay, I'll come up and pick them up. So I went to base supply in a weapons carrier and picked up four fuel injection pumps. When I came back by the supply unit, I told my friend and buddy there that we worked together. I said, I'm going up to the hangar where the flyway kits are to put these injection pumps in there. I drove up to this hangar and backed the uh, weapons carrier up to the personnel door and got out. And With my key, I was about to open the door. I noticed there was an individual over here, but I had not paid any attention to who he was or what he was doing. And the guy says, hey, Sarge, where are you going? I said, I'm going in the building here to put some fuel injection pumps in our flyaway kits. He says, you can't go in there. Well, I didn't pay a great bit of attention to him. I just kept walking with my key, and I got almost to the door to insert the key. And he says, I says, you can't go in there. Then I looked at him to see who he was. I noticed he had on an MP armband, and he had a .45 on his hip. I said, You and who else says I can't go in there before I saw this? He says, Me and this and patted that forty five on his hip. Well you don't really argue with a person with a forty five on his hip. So I said, Okay. I turned around, put the key in the pocket, got in the weapons care, went back down to the section and told my friend H T White, I said he said, I thought you were gonna put those injection pumps in the flyaway kit. I said, I was, but there's some guy up there with a .45 on his hip and won't let me in the building. And we passed it off and thought more of it. Three days later, base supply called it. We had some more parts up there for the flyaway kit. I went up and got that, added the fuel injection pumps that I was there with three days earlier, went up there, walked in, no problem. So why did the man keep me out of that building at that particular time? I do not know. I may, I may be wrong, but why, why else would I be kept out of that building when I was going in on a daily or a weekly basis, anytime we wanted to go?
1: That was a Savage Dodson. Well, I mean, this is an interesting piece of testimony because he didn't see bodies, he didn't see debris, but speak to me, Don, we, we only have about a minute here, but why this piece of testimony is important?
3: Because he was able to confirm not only the lockdown in the base, that the big hangar, as they referred to, was called P-3 back in 1947, Building 84, as it's known today, that there were specific orders of uh, shoot to kill. Anybody that even came around the hangar at that time, unauthorized, as to what was transpiring from within. And so uh, Dobson was able to actually you know, describe uh, the overall um, contention and the actual fear that was that was transpiring out at the base at that time. Uh, he worked at one of the hangars to the west of the flight line and uh, even west of where the operations building was. And when we actually walked out there with him on one occasion, and this is the opposite side of the base, and yet they were fully aware of the entire atmosphere on the base at that time. It was actually eerie as he and others described that it was though something was going on nobody could put their, their finger on it and it certainly wasn't anything involving the recovery of a silly weather balloon that a five-year-old right. child would have recognized one of the
1: things that, that occurs to me is prior to this it seems like security at the roswell army airfield was pretty loosey-goosey and then everything changed on one particular day but uh, we are out of time gentlemen listen I, I really appreciate the time uh, Don you've spent with us and uh, looking back the 70th anniversary congratulations on cover-up at Roswell thank you
3: well thank you to both of you I always enjoy this you're two dear close friends of mine and I wish you 20 more years of this show Richard so.
1: Thank you. One thing that the Pentagon didn't count on when they started this cover-up, and that was Donald R. Schmidt. First night, yeah. Victor, thank you. You're most welcome. Pleasure to be here. All right, my thanks to Ian Robertson. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night. Good night.